0: 24, verses 32 through 44 this morning, but before we do there, I just have a couple of announcements. Uh, The first one is that I'm canceling the relationship series because Gwen has demanded equal time. And so I'd be toast if if I gave that to her. Now we're... <laughs> don't, hey, don't feel bad, Bob. Your wife also wanted equal time. <laughs> no, well, um, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun time. Um, it's we're, we're going to start off with the tale of two brains. And if anybody's ever seen that by Mark Gunger, it is hilarious, but there's so much truth to the way we relate to each other and the way we communicate. Um, <clears throat> And so it just enables us to sort of laugh at some of our craziness and grow through that. On a more serious note, I've never seen so many bear outfits here. Um, but I am amazed. I'm amazed at one individual that has wearing a bear's outfit. Jacob, would you stand up? He's wearing a Mitch Trubisky jersey. Now for those of you who don't know, his cousin is a wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings. His great uncle played for the Buffalo Bills and the Green Bay Packers and has won a Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers. So I asked him, I go, does it take a lot of courage to wear that with your family? He goes, no. But if I go to my great-grandmother's, she might kick me out. <laughs> so, thanks, Jacob. So, great kid. <clears throat> um, when I was growing up, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, one of our favorite games was hide-and-seek. And we even took it to you know, teams of 15 to 20 playing, playing it against each other. Um, and watching our kids, our grandkids, they'll be in our house, and one of the first things they do is they go play hide-and-seek. And, And, you know, they'll be sitting there counting, and you'll see them scatter. And as the numbers get closer to, you know, the time that they're going to go look, you can just see the level of anxiety growing up in the kids. And then as soon as they say, ready or not, the, the level of anxiety is at, all, at heights. You know, oh, where do I hide? Where do I go? You know. And if there is any theme for this chapter of Matthew, it's, "Ready or not, here I come." Um, because that's really what Jesus is saying. Whether you're ready or not, I'm coming. And so it's up to you whether or not you're going to be prepared for when I arrive. Um, And so, it's a text, this this morning's text deals with the suddenness and the unexpectedness of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now remember the setting. Um, His disciples have approached him with a question that's been on their minds. They say, tell us, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What are the signs and when will it happen? And Jesus began by answering the what are the signs question. And the answers we've already studied were in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 31. And then in this section, he tells them the signs of his coming. And in verses 32 through 35, which we're just going to look at briefly, Jesus gives three powerful guarantees. That all he said will actually come to pass. So whether or not you believe it, it, all the prophecies, the histories, are there, and Jesus is saying, "I guarantee to you that this is going to be happened, ready or not." Here I come. And it says, "From the fig tree, from the from the fig tree, learn its lesson." As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Um, And I just sort of find that interesting, that that word picture, at the very gates. Um, I like watching skiing, racing, and to see the skiers up at the top at the gate, waiting to go down the hill, and it's sort of like as soon as that gate opens, they're gone. And I just sort of see Jesus up there in heaven, standing at the gate, just waiting, and as soon as that gate opens, he's here. He's here. And that's the first guarantee. Everyone knows that when the trees begin to put forth their leaves, it's an infallible indication that summer is near. And if you take a look at the trend of world events, it's a guarantee that everything that Jesus has been saying about how it's going to change, how it's going to get worse, what it's going to look like, is coming true. And it will happen. And he's telling the truth about the future. And history continues to confirm his predictions as it unfolds. Then the Lord offers a second guarantee in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Now, the first part of Matthew was talking about that generation of the disciples. But if you take a look at the word of generation, meaning the people of Israel, which it has done many times, to find as the people of Israel, Israel will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. And Israel has gone through everything and continues to persevere. And so Israel will continue on until the return of Jesus. Um, And the third assurance Jesus offers is his own infallible promise. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, but Jesus will be the same. And so all of that was taking place. And he said, all these things, I guarantee to you that it is all going to happen. It is your choice of whether or not you're going to be ready when I come. We sang it. He declared that he would give his life as a ransom for many. And he did. He would rise again from the dead. And he did. And he said, and I am returning, and he will. And so it's our choice of whether or not we're going to believe him, whether we're really going to take his word seriously, or whether we are just going to get caught up (coughs) with sort of an indifference or the mundane task of life. So at this point, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, there's a definite break. He has completed his outline of the events during the end of the age, and beginning in beginning of verse 36, all the way through the end of chapter 25, he deals with, uh, when shall these things be? So if you look at just verses 36 through 44, go ahead and read those on your own. Verses 36 through 44, in Matthew chapter 24, you get them on the sermon notes, <clears throat> or in your Bible, or on your iPhone, but go ahead and just read those verses. Verse 36 is sort of the key to the whole section. But of that day and hour knoweth no one. No, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but my Father only. And so we don't know. We don't know that moment. We don't know when it's going to take place. And there's a reason for that. Because the Lord wants every generation to live in expectancy every generation to live in that respect. Are you ready? Are you expecting? Are you prepared? Are you waiting for the Lord? And from the beginning, every generation has had this sense of the Lord could come at any time. In the United States, our comfort level has replaced for many our expectancy level. And so because we have become so comfortable, we don't think about the return of Jesus as much. But it is also the height of arrogance, the height of arrogance for anybody to be able to say, this is the day, this is the time when Jesus is returning. Because if Jesus himself says, I don't even know when we're coming ba- I'm coming back. And somebody else says, well, I do Jesus. You'll be back on this day. I mean, can you imagine the arrogance of that? But yet, year after year, pastors, leaders, Christian leaders will sit there and say, I figured it all out by figuring out all the numbers, by putting all of this together, and this is the time when Jesus is going to return. It just absolutely astounds me that somebody would believe that. When Jesus himself said, I, I don't even know. So if you've got to figure it out, but, you know, all, all the power to you. But Jesus says, I'm just waiting for my father to tell me when I'm coming. Um, men seem to display that an urgent passion to set dates for the coming. And this is one of the dangers of looking at any end times study or prophecy or any of that. We're more interested in the events than we are the person. We allow the events to take our attention instead of saying, no, it's not about the events. It's about the person. It's about Jesus Christ. But they're asking, what are the signs and when will this happen? God has maintained a silence about certain matters, and this is one of them. The day or the hour is clearly marked top secret. It's also interesting to note that if a person does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus has not revealed the timing of his coming produces indifference. doesn't matter. They don't care. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you don't care. This is how Matthew Henry puts it. The uncertainty of the time of Christ's coming is to those who are watchful a savor of life unto light. and makes them more watchful. But to those who are careless it makes them a savor of death unto death. And it makes them more careless. It's amazing, isn't it? The very same thing makes one person more careless and one person more careful. One person more thoughtless, one person more thoughtful. One person unprepared, the other person prepared. Same event that's going to take place. It's all a matter of faith. How you view Christ, how you view your life, is whether or not you look forward or understand or recognize the promises that Christ is coming back or you become indifferent to it. And Jesus makes this even more forceful with his point in verses 37 through 39. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming, the parousia, of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Um, what he's saying is that life is just going to go on as usual. People will just be doing, men will eat, they will drink, they'll marry, they'll give in marriage. They will just do the normal, everyday events of life. And it was like that in the days of Noah. Life was going on in an ordinary fashion. Moral conditions may have been bad. It may have been as bad as it's ever been. The moral conditions... When Jesus is saying these words, could have been bad, as bad as ever. But they're really no worse than at other times. And But he's saying they did not recognize what was going on until the flood came. There was no sense of any coming disaster uh, that just happened. They went on. These people at the time of Noah went on despite Noah preaching for 120 years about the judgment of God. He warned his generation that God would judge the world one day. And despite the familiar sight of this huge ark that was built a long way from anywhere where it was going to float, um, they probably just looked at Noah and said, he's crazy. He's just crazy. Now, if you've never been to the ark, I would encourage you to go. Make it a weekend trip. Go to the ark. Go when it's not the summertime so the lines aren't four miles long. Um, It is an amazing thing to see. And when you look at it and you see the size of this structure, it is phenomenal. Um, But imagine that going on. Well, we get the same thing today when Christians talk about Christ is going to return. And if you're not a believer, people just think you're crazy. They don't even have any idea what you're talking about. Um, But then, all of a sudden, the clouds began to form. The skies darkened. The earth began to heave. The bottom of the sea raised in a great tidal waves of water. And tons of water came for 40 days. Um, Again, life was going on as usual. Think about it from this also perspective. Noah and his family were told to take the animals to go into the dark. God shut the door of the ark so that Noah and his family, eight people in all, were separated from the world. Now that's one thing, but they're in the ark for eight days, seven days, before anything happened. They're in the ark for seven days and it's sunny outside. People are continuing to go on. Hey Noah, how you doing up there? I mean, I, you'd even wonder if Noah started to question. Wait a second, you told me it was going to storm. I'm in here and now it's beautiful out. Nothing's happened. And then, like that. And he's saying that's exactly what's going to happen When I return, there's going to be a whole lot of people that are unprepared. There's going to be a whole lot of people that aren't going to be ready. There's going to be a whole lot of people that think they're ready who are not ready. And there's going to be a whole lot of people who are just indifferent. Again, the second thought here is that Jesus tells us that the second coming is not even going to be looked for by unbelievers. They're not going to be expecting it. They're not going to be looking for it. Um, Christ's coming is going to be surprising to those who are unprepared. Uh, And again, when you take a look at everything that they were doing, there was nothing wrong with what they were doing. There's nothing wrong with going to work. There's nothing wrong with getting married. There's nothing wrong with eating and sleeping and being with your friends. There is nothing wrong with the things that they were doing. And so it's not like those were bad. What he's saying is if those things become your purpose, your goal, your end all, they're going to preoccup- you're going to be preoccupied with the mundane. And if you're preoccupied with the mundane, the spiritual will never have first place. And so instead of Jesus being first place, Jesus is plugged into our schedule for about two hours every Sunday. Or two hours a week. And that's that's what Jesus gets. And all the rest of the time we're just going on with our normal things. So rather the mundane becomes what dominates our thinking. Oh, I got to do this today, I got to get this work done, I got to get that. And a person can go for a whole day without once thinking about how is Christ going to be a part of this? I was talking to Anna And she was telling me about teaching the Sunday school, and she said, there's some kids in there that just, every every Bible story, every lesson, they just know it. And she goes, and I just couldn't figure it out, so I went and asked the parents. I said, how do they know that? They go, because all day long, we try to make every example, every situation, become focused on how is God using that? Or how is the parallel with what God is doing? These kids are living with an expectation of the presence of Christ. Um, and I got to tell you, when Anna was telling me that about that parent, I'm thinking to myself, that didn't happen in my world. I didn't raise my kids that way. I mean, it was we were in church all the time. But it was like, okay, we we're at church. And then when we got home, you know, we're doing other things. And so it wasn't like we were living with an expectation. And that's what he's telling us to do live with an expectation. Because when we let the mundane overtake, that is far more dangerous to our souls than the particular instances of actual rebellion against God. William Hendrickson wrote, when the soul becomes entirely wrapped up in these mundane things, however appropriate they are, eating and drinking, marrying and giving a marriage, so that these matters become ends in themselves and spiritual tasks are neglected, these things are no longer a blessing to us. They become a curse. Um, and again, what's the sad part is that these people get taken by surprise. And yet they've been warned and warned and warned. I had a a man I knew who I had to let go for being a part of the ministry. And he called me up one day and says, well, would you be a reference for me? I I will, but I'm going to tell the truth. What do you mean? He goes, well, I'm going to tell them that you have an unteachable spirit, that no matter what we asked you to do, you would not listen and you would just do what you were supposed to do which is the reason why we had to let you go. He goes, okay. I got like four four calls from different people asking me to give him a reference. And I did. Told him exactly what I was going to say. He called me up and said, why are you giving me a bad reference? I go, what are you talking about? I told you exactly what I was going to say, and that's exactly what I said. I could not comprehend how he was surprised. Oh, he was surprised by that. And I said, Frank, I've given you every possible warning. I told you you weren't going to get a good review from me, and yet you still asked me for a reference. Could that give an indication that maybe you don't have a teachable spirit? I don't know. Um, but that's exactly what's going to happen to these people. Jesus has given us every possible warning. And he says, ready or not, here I come. Are you going to still try to hide on me? Because it's not going to work. Or are you going to be prepared? And how are you living your life today that shows you are prepared for my coming tomorrow? And then, uh, this is plainly described in verses 40 through 41. Then two men will be in the field, one is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one is taken and the other left. Christ's coming, in other words, is giving is going to be a separating event. His coming is going to finally divide belief and unbelief, the just and the unjust. And so Jesus is saying, for all those who rest in me, for all those who are prepared, for all those who know me, they will find peace. But those who do not trust in me, those who do not believe, they will be eternally at war with those who love me. And they will never be joined either here or in the hereafter. Those who reject me will be rejected by my fathers. Those who embrace me will be embraced by my father who is in heaven. And it's clear that the distinction is, and is a moment. It's a moment. It's in the twinkling of an eye. There is going to be this separation. There's going to be no second chances. It's not going to be, okay, wow, I missed it. You know, I'll I'll be right with you. You know, no, that's not how it's going to be. And it's after warning, after warning, after warning, after warning, after warning. The problem is that we have gotten so comfortable with the mundane, we no longer listen to the warnings. We no longer hear the word of God saying, be prepared. And we will continue on doing whatever we're doing and missing what Jesus is actually saying. There shall be no time for parting words or a change of mind. When the Lord appears, there will be no second chance. And then he adds a word of admonition. Watch therefore. Watch therefore. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known at what part of the night the chief thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have left his house be, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming, at an hour you do not expect. So he's basically repeating what he said in verse 36. But he uses an illustration that's just obvious. Um, you don't know when I'm coming. And so verse 32, it tells us that he tells us to be prepared because of what we don't know. If you don't know what's going to take place, you better be prepared. And so just automatically, I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to know. What I know is that because I don't know, Jesus is telling me to be prepared. I've had... In marriage counseling, or not in marriage counseling, in pre marriage counseling, you know, people will tell me that they know what their marriage is going to be like and all these wonderful things. And they tell me all these things about, and I go, okay. You have no clue. All I can tell you is when you get married, be prepared for being unprepared. Be prepared for what you don't know. Because once you get married, you don't know. You don't know what God has. That we need to constantly be working and being prepared. Matthew Henry said it this way. It is the great duty and interest of all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ to be awake and keep awake that they may mind their business. Meaning that when We need to put first things first. If Jesus is returning, that has to be constantly on the forefront. So Jesus is saying, don't fail to attend to the most important spiritual business in the midst of all your other responsibilities. If you have these other responsibilities, that's fine, but don't neglect your spiritual responsibilities. Don't allow the things which are most important be replaced by the things that are of least importance. And then in verse 43, he gives a warning illustration. And again, it's just taken from the life of Palestine. If there's a robber, and you know when he's coming, and you're prepared, he's not going to come. If the robber's at your door and you just turn on the light, he's probably going to go a different direction. And so Jesus is showing an illustration of how a homeowner, by not being diligent, lost something. Now, he's not blaming the person for being robbed. He's not blaming the person for being robbed. But he is raising the issue of responsibility because he has told us that he is coming. And he has commanded us to be prepared. And if we are not repaired, unlike a homeowner who experiences a surprise break-in from a thief, we are responsible. I've given you every warning And you didn't listen, you didn't respond, you didn't follow through, suffer the consequences. And how many times have we even had those kind of statements, comments with other people? I've told you this was going to happen, I told you you were going to get fired from this job, I told you that you were going to flunk the test, I told you if you didn't study you were going to fail, I told you exactly what what questions were going to be on the test, and you still didn't study, and you failed. You were unprepared. And so the ownership is on us. It's not on God. Don't be unprepared. And finally in verse 44, he gives another exhortation. In verse 42, he tells us to be prepared because we don't know. In verse 44, he gives, tells us to be prepared because what we do know. <clears throat> and what we do know is that his coming is coming and it will be unexpected. We don't know the time, but we know. Um, and so he's telling us to be prayer, be prepared for this to take place. Um, see, a person is vigilant. A person is watchful. A person is prepared. A person is alert. A person is ready not passively waiting for Christ or by trying to decipher secret signs, but by actively trusting and loving Christ and longing for the day of his coming. Listen to the tense that he uses. He says, "Um, Are you trusting Christ now? It's current, it's present tense. And a lot of times people will say, "Yeah, I I trusted Christ." You know, when I was twenty years old. And they just sort of left it there. But are you trusting him today? Because it's are you trusting him, in everything that is going on in your life today? See. Charles Spurgeon said, true conversion gives a man security, but it doesn't allow him to leave off being watchful. And that's how we're supposed to be. Um, Another thought came to my mind. I like mottos, little mottos, and I like family mottos. Um, Who said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Joshua. That was sort of his motto. When we first got married, somebody gave us a plaque that we could put above our door that said, but it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Um, People heard, seize the day. Um, Tony Campolo made that. He wrote a book on that theme. Um, Do no harm, is the Hippocratic Oath. We must become the change we wish to see in the world. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Love all, trust a few, do wrong to no one. Anybody had idea who that was? Their motto: Love all, trust a few, do wrong to no one. William Shakespeare. Um, does everybody know what the motto is? The of the Marine Corps is. What? Always faithful. Semper Fi, always faithful. Um, And what is the motto of the Boy Scouts? Be prepared. I think it does does good for families to have a family vision statement, but I also think it's good for a family to have a motto. And the motto for every Christian would be one is just like the Boy Scouts be prepared. Be prepared. Um, Father, I just praise you and thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that over and over and over and over again you give us your warnings. But they're just not warnings. Because for the believer being able to look forward to your coming and produce a sense of hope and joy and excitement and anticipation. Because the whole paradox of the Christian life is that though we look for you to come, you are already here with us. Um, And the intensity which we can love you or love your coming is based on the intensity of our love for you today. And so when we truly grow in our love for you. We can grow in our love and our anticipation of seeing you face to face, of seeing your return. And so, Father, again, it's just like a warning light in my mind, on my dashboard. If I fear the future, it's because I don't trust you. If I'm not sure about your return, it's because I don't trust your truth. If I don't look forward to it, it's because maybe I don't have the love relationship that I need with you today. Because I know the more I love anything, the more I look forward to seeing it. And so help me to grow in my love for you. Help me to grow in my understanding of your truth. Help me to grow in my acceptance and my acting out on that. So that, Lord, when people talk about how bad things are getting in our world, it's not even an issue. Because I recognize that each day it's closer to being with you face to face. So, Father, help me to grow in my love for you And help me to be constantly aware whenever that love starts to grow cold. Minister to each of us that we can go forth to be your people. Ministering to others. And just as you warned people for centuries, we may feel like we're just speaking to deaf ears. But it doesn't take away our responsibility to continue to share the story, to share the truth that you came, you saved, and you're coming again. Uh, So, Father, just help us to be strong and diligent in the word that you have given us is our prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen.